Good morning, church. I know you're expecting somebody else up here to preach. Don't look so disappointed. He'll get up here in a minute. Be okay. First, I want to have our scripture reader, uh, Remy Barkley, come up. She, by the way, loves Jesus, loves to read her Bible, and I think was won the Citizenship Award of the Year at your school, right? Well, congratulations on that. That's great. She's going to be reading our text for us. Romans 7:24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you so much. Great job. Beautiful young lady. Larry Bowles, come on up. I, I, I started to introduce Larry several ways, and then uh, uh, I said he's not really a visitor anymore, you know. Uh, he's been here several times, and so we're just proud to have you here to preach the Word. And look, when, when we asked Larry to speak, he said, now look, I'll just, I'll just stay in whatever series you're in, and we're in Romans. And we said, no problem, it just happens that you hit Romans 7, uh, which is great because Al or me, neither one wanted to preach on that chapter, so that worked out great, you know. And so, right. I, I heard rumor that Mike snickered when this text was assigned to me. So, <laughs> well, that's good because yeah. I assigned it. Oh, so, okay. Uh, okay. Well, uh, I want to pray over my brother. By the way, uh, we have a great partnership in reaching people all over the world, especially through Athens uh, with all the refugee work. I know you guys are anxious to get back there. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Kathy's unable to be here. She's been uh, sick, so we want to pray for her uh, also and as you deliver the word. Father, thank you for my brother. You know his heart for you. Yeah. We are honored to partner together and trying to reach as many people as we can with the good news of Jesus. Bless him as he opens up the word of life to us today. Thank you, Father, for his sweet wife and I pray, Father, for healing on her behalf. I pray, Father, for protection for them as they continue to uh, plan and, and go back to Athens and to work among so many people around the world. Thank you for their heart and desire to, to win people to Jesus. Father, it's in Jesus' name with the help of the Spirit that we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Love you, brother. Love you. Yesterday... Um, I'm doing the seven-hour drive down here, and I have a lot of time to think, which is a dangerous thing for a guy like me. And I'm thinking about the way that you guys love Kathy and I, and I came to the conclusion that the way that you do that is unreasonable. No, I mean, really, you people are crazy. The way that you love and care for us and hold us in your hearts, you, you pray for us, you um, hold out your arms to us, you stand with us in our ministry. It's not just us, it's Javad and Julie and Aram and Miriam and it's Omran and Malad and Madi and it's um, Masood and Anahita and Yasser and Zara, Hadi. And you may never meet these people this side of heaven, but you love them the same way that you love us. It's unreasonable. Now, your elders are just really messed up. (laughs) They invite us down here and they let me preach. That's their first mistake. 
Um, and then I say a bunch of stuff and make everybody mad. And then I get in a car and I run away for about a year and they have to clean up after me for about two weeks. Um, and, and that's not the crazy part. They invite me back. And no, seriously, I mean, you know, we'll, I'll go preach somewhere and Kathy will get in the car and we're driving home. She's like, well, there's another church we're never being invited back to. You preach too long. Well, yeah, I know. You need to buy gift cards for all the nursery workers. I know. Okay. But then they invite me back and they assign me a subject and a text like this. These guys have clearly lost their minds. And so in the interest of protecting them from themselves, I offer this Perhaps. Ladies and gentlemen, the comments offered by the speaker this morning may or may not necessarily reflect the ministry staff at WFR Church. Thank you. So look out and thank you for your unreasonable love for us. We love you. And like Mike said, you can't pick your family, but. We're so honored and privileged to be a part of this family. Before I begin this morning, I want to reestablish in our minds just what Mike and Alan and Jace have led us through the past several weeks in the book of Romans. The primary message of the book of Romans up to this point is that God is gloriously righteous. He is gloriously righteous in redeeming those who are ungodly and doing so by faith alone apart from works of the law. How can this be? How can God justify or declare as righteous the ungodly? How can he just acquit the guilty and still be just? Well, the answer comes in one of the most important statements of the entire Bible. It's Romans 3, 24 and 26. God presented Jesus Christ, His Son, to shed His blood in our place so that He would be both just and the justifier. The one who has faith in Jesus. This is the high point of the book of Romans to this point. Jesus, who was crucified, is the sin-bearing Redeemer, and we who trust in Him are justified before God because Jesus is holy and righteous. Jesus' righteousness credited to us by faith, God justifying the ungodly. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a massive reality that undergirds this gospel, and that reality is this. God is sovereign. Therefore, there is law. The creator of the universe has revealed his sovereign will, and it is law. And when his will is not done, there's real guilt, real condemnation, real punishment. So the existence existence of sovereignty in the universe provides the foundation for guilt and condemnation, for law keeping, for law breaking, for grace and judgment, justification. All of these things are resting on this one fact. God is sovereign. And therefore, there is 
law. He is God. He's not trying to be God. He's not wanting to be God. He absolutely and completely reigns. The book of Romans is about how sinful human beings, that is, all human beings, 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verse 9, who have fallen short of the glory of God, chapter 3 and verse 20, have dishonored Him with our very lives, chapter 1 and verse 21, and therefore are deserving of His wrath, chapter 132, chapter 2 and verse 5. We're made right by God. That is justified on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us in His life, in His death, in His burial, and in His resurrection, chapter 3, chapter 5. This incredible gospel truth of Romans is that God provides a righteousness by which He credits, He reckons, He imparts, He imputes His own righteousness to us through Faith, Romans 3, 21 and 22 tells us, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifested. God has manifested, He has made this to happen, His righteousness being made manifest and available to us. All of this is being witnessed by the law and by the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all those who believe. Paul says in Romans 5, For as though through one man's disobedience, namely Adam, many were made sinners, even though through the obedience of the one, namely Jesus, many will be made righteous. Going on in verse 20, the law was brought in, the law was added so that The trespass. What's the trespass? Our sin. So that sin would get worse. It's like God says, fine, if you won't willingly follow me into grace and forgiveness, I'm going to use the law to drive you to Jesus. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Verse 21 so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life to Jesus Christ our Lord. That is God's sovereign will. How did God do this? Second Corinthians 5. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that... In Him we might become the righteousness of God. Where did Jesus get His sin? Exact same place you got your righteousness at the cross of Calvary. This is the will of God, the sovereign will of God. When you're reading Scripture and you see the words, so that, you know what that is? That is God's sovereign will being done. Let there be and there was. No human free will involved in any of that. He didn't ask anybody's permission. This is something God is doing. John 5, 22, they're coming up to Jesus and they're saying, you're claiming to be God in the flesh. Don't you know that God's going to judge you? And he said, first, I don't think you understand who you're talking to. Secondly, the Father judges no one. 
All judgment has been given to the Son so that all will honor the Son in exactly the same way as they honor the Father. Those that don't honor the Son, they don't honor the Father who sent Him. What does Paul mean in Romans 3.22 when all of this is being witnessed by the law and the prophets? What prophets? How about Isaiah? How about Isaiah 53? How about Isaiah 53, 4, and 5. Surely He took up our pain. He bore our suffering, yet we considered Him to be punished by God. To be stricken by God. To be afflicted by God. That was our perception of that whole thing. Verse 5. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that has brought us peace was laid on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. God spoke that through Isaiah 700 years before it happened on the cross of Calvary. That's the sovereign will of God. In John 6, 40, they asked Jesus, what is the will of God? Tell us, Jesus, what's the will of God? And He says, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. That's what the will of God is. It is God's will that not one would be lost. Not one. Okay, I'm coming to the point to understand that the glory of the gospel, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, is the foundation for everything we're talking about today. Okay, I'm ready to start the sermon now. The text I've been given to cover this morning is arguably one of the most difficult and most controversial chapters in the book of Romans. I don't know how that happened, but there it is. But the given text is simply way too much to cover in just one sermon. So... I'm going to just do two sermons this morning. Oh, you may laugh, but that's actually happening right now, this morning. Here's the first sermon. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. We're going to divide this in two sections. 7 through 13. I'm going to read through this text. I think it's on the screen. There it is. And I want to just point out one thing as we read this. I want you to notice how clearly and solidly set all of this language is in the past tense. There's lots of words in here that end with ED. Okay? And I'll point out why that, I think that's important after a while. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not, he says. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity, 
afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that, so that, sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that, through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. The first thing I see Paul saying in that the law is not sin is that we need to know our sin. We need to know what sin really is. It is important for us to know sin. It's good for us to know our sin. Paul assumes this, doesn't he? He says, it's not the law that sin. It's holy, righteous, and good. Verse 12, he says, it's not the law. Because without the law, I wouldn't know what sin really was. Now, if it weren't good and right and helpful and important for you and me to know our sin, he'd simply say, eh, just ignore it. It'll go away. Who cares if you know your sin? Paul cares. And let me tell you, Jesus really cares. Matthew 5, Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the law, specifically the Ten Commandments. Everybody's, oh yeah, I'm down with the Ten Commandments. Been trying to keep them my whole life. Okay, let's do murder. Okay, yeah, I haven't murdered anyone yet. Today, it's early. Okay, great. I'll tell you what though, if you hate your brother and sister, you're guilty of murder. Ooh, that's not fair, Jesus. It's like they're playing poker, you know. It's like, I can see that. No, I'm calling you. I'm raising. Let's do adultery. All the guys get the cards out. I've never committed adultery. Well, I'll tell you what. If you've ever looked lustfully on a woman, fold, 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 I'm out. I don't want to play this game anymore. He says we don't know how deep and how awful sin is. We don't understand what sin is. The level. And he says, how dangerous is our sin if your hand causes you to sin? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, take a big stick and just gouge it out because it's better for you to go through life missing a body part than have your whole body thrown into hell. You think Jesus is serious about sin? Oh, the danger of not knowing our sin. There's so much pain and self-destruction that comes into our minds, our hearts, our souls, our marriages, our family, the church, and in this world. Simply because we are never realizing our sin. There is an eternal loss that comes from never losing our pride and our arrogance before God. That comes from the acknowledgement of our complete weakness, our wickedness, and our sinfulness. If we're ever to have love, peace, peace, joy, goodness, kindness, self-control. It will come as a result of acknowledging, recognizing our sin. Get to know your sin. You know, one of the clearest evidences that sin even exists in this room today. Some of you just heard me say, experiment with sin. Larry just said it. Try a little pornography, a little lying, a little stealing. 
swearing, let the expletives fly, see what it feels like. You know that's not what I'm saying. But sin, taking the opportunity, always takes our minds captive for its own desires and even makes the most foolish thoughts look plausible. How subtle and how devious is our sin. Sin will always speak to you in the first person, singular, in a Louisiana accent that sounds just like your own voice. Guys, let's say that you've had a big argument. I'm talking a big argument with your wife. Ladies, I'm sure you're completely innocent in this scenario. Sin won't walk up to you and say, dude, your wife is horrible. How do you stand her? You'll reject that. You know why? Because you'll always reject an outside thought or ideal. You'll even bow up against that. Sin will walk up and say, who does she think she is treating me like that? I think I'm leave. I think I'm done. It's just over. How subtle is our sin? It reminds me, you know, when Paul says, no, the law is not sin. That's not what the law is for. Michael Card wrote a song several years ago. and It was about Judas betraying Jesus. And he said, Judas, that's not what a kiss is for. Why would God allow to do uh, sin to do with His commands what He does? And Paul answers that in verse 13. So that sin would become exceedingly, immeasurably sinful. It is sinful to murder. It is utterly sinful to cause an innocent person to murder for you. It's sinful to poison a child. It is utterly sinful to trick a mother into giving that poison to her own child. Three times in the Old Testament, Exodus 23, 34, Deuteronomy 14, God gives this command. Do not boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. You ever wonder why? Because that's not what a mother's milk is for. Mother's milk is meant to give life, not to become an instrument of death. How about using Scripture to deceive? Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days fasting, the very limit of human endurance. Satan walks up and says, if you are the Son of God, doesn't the Scripture say you could do that and actually get away with it? Satan with Eve. Did God really say, don't eat of that tree or you'll surely die? Yes! He actually said that. No, He didn't mean you're going to die. He's just not telling you the whole plan. To break God's command is sinful. To use God's command to break God's command is utterly sinful. I can do all things. We love that one. I can do all things through any verse taken totally out of context. The theological gymnastics that we use Scripture for to satisfy and justify our behavior is just exhausting. Are you telling me you're going to stand face to face with Jesus at the judgment and argue your interpretation of Romans 1, 8, 18 through 31, really? 
Oh, yes, I've done a Greek word study, and I really don't think it means... Really? That's your plan? Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active. It's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword to the point of dividing, penetrating the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It splits you in half. It lays you open. It shoves you in a corner and makes you choose. And it doesn't stop there. It goes on to say that it judges the thoughts and intentions of the human heart. We think we read the Bible. We don't read the Bible. The Bible reads us. To reject Jesus and the gospel is sinful, but to use our allegiance to Christ and our knowledge of His Word as license to justify our sinful desires is utterly sinful. So the bottom line here in Romans 7 to this point is that the reason we need to die to the law is that the law is holy, righteous, and good, but it's completely and totally powerless to transform us. And we are utterly sinful. Sin's a liar. Sin's lying to us. We're being deceived. And what's the lie? What tricky half-truth? I think you can boil it down into two basic things. They sound like complete opposites, but I think they're exactly the same. On one hand, sin might say when it meets the commands of God, you can't keep this. You ain't got a chance. You wouldn't even really want to if you, want, if you could. And if there is some holy God sovereign out there somewhere... You're never going to please Him. You might as well put all of that out of your head and get as much pleasure in your life as you can because you're going to get smoked in the end anyway. Or, to the hopeful self-righteous, He might say, you can do this. You're just not trying hard enough. Larry, all you got to do is muster all your strength, all your willpower, and just show yourself to be better than that guy. And... Get ready for the judgment. Think about your answers. Think about what you're going to say. Both of those are lies, and to believe either one of them is death. What's the remedy? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who will believe. And Paul says, I'm not even ashamed of that. The gospel says to the hopeless, self-destructive, there's real hope for you. Because though your sins were as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. He says to the hopeful, self-righteous, though your righteousness is as filthy rags, Jesus' righteousness has become your righteousness. Okay, that's the end of the first sermon. And if you didn't like the first sermon, then you're really going to hate the second one, okay? You ready? Romans seven fourteen through 25, 12 verses. Why is this text controversial? You want to understand why? Because what happens in this text, everybody's got a little theological boat that they like to keep watertight. And what Jesus does in this is comes and starts kicking holes in all of our theology boats. Because whatever doctrine that we adopt 
Jesus is always trying to move us away from doctrine into trust and into faith in Him. And He will do it. This is clearly set in the present tense. This is another thing that messes with people. This couldn't be Paul's Christian experience, really. Are you reading this? Because this is written by the indwelt Holy Spirit transformed person of Jesus Christ in the now. He uses the words I, me, and my almost 40 times in 12 verses. Do you think he's talking about anybody else? No, he's talking about himself. Here we go. We know that the law is spiritual. I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I do, want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. Did you ever see that verse crocheted on a couch pillow? No, we skip right over that. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree, meaning I testify to the fact that the law is good. And as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. We're coming back to that. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. We're coming back to that. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. We're coming back to that. So, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, in my inner man, my spiritual man, Paul talks about in other places, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me waging war against the law in my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from the body that is subject to death? And here comes the answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, myself, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Okay, first thing. How many times did you see Paul blame Satan for this problem? He's like, this is all me. I own this whole thing, every bit of it. Did you know that Paul never mentions Satan anywhere in the book of Romans except to the very end after all the greetings say hello to Priscilla and Aquila and Rufus and all the names we can't pronounce? Chapter 16 and verse 20. What he says is that the Lord will soon crush Satan under your feet. Soon. But not yet. Yes, Satan has already been defeated. Satan has been rendered powerless. But he has not yet been destroyed. 
We live in this time of already, but not yet. The kingdom of God has already come. We are living in the kingdom now, but it has not yet been fulfilled. That's what the book of Revelation is about. Paul says we're to wait, we're to watch, we're to hope with earnest expectation as we shout, Come Lord Jesus! Come Lord Jesus! Come Lord Jesus! The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! I want you to listen very carefully to me. Not because... I don't want you to listen to me. I'm an idiot. I want you to listen to what Jesus might say to you through this. Because this is where... We could be deceived. This is where the big hook could come in from the side of the stage and you drag me off of here. So please hear me. And Satan has no power. The only power Satan has over you and me is the power we give him. We have to allow him access to our minds and to our hearts and to our physical bodies. You are owned and possessed by Jesus Christ. By His blood, you were bought with a price. He can't touch you unless you let Him. He has no power to judge. Satan is not sending anybody to hell. Satan's not your problem. He can be a problem. But he's not the problem. Sin is the problem. And Paul says everybody on this planet is without excuse. Chapter 1 and verse 20. It is God alone. Namely, Jesus Christ. The Son of Man. Daniel seven fourteen. Jesus refers to himself by this prophecy 74 times in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Son of Man has all authority, sovereign authority. He has sovereign power in heaven and on earth and below the earth, and he sits in the only seat of judgment, Matthew 25. Jesus is the only one that will send people to their destruction. Matthew 25:41 He will say to those on his left Depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These are Jesus' words. I actually thought I could do that. (laughs) Hear me, please. You and I are created in the image of God, Genesis 1.26. We're the only thing in all creation created in His image, which means that He has given us a thing called free will. Because of that, we have the ability, the only thing in the universe that has the ability to say no to God. Beyond that, to spit in His face. Therefore, God is only obligated to give you and me one thing. 
And that is the desire of your heart. If the desire of your heart is Christ in you, the hope of glory, He will move heaven, earth, and hell to make that happen for you. I will work all things together for good for those that love me and are called according to my purpose, even if it means taking you out of this life before you're ready to go. He's going to make it happen. That's His obligation, His promise to you. But if your desire is for evil, and not just for evil, for the things of this world, he says, go ahead, eat, drink, be merry, build bigger barns for your stuff. Have at it. And your cup will be full. And he will say, if that's the desire of your heart, I'm going to just give you the desire of your heart. Jesus doesn't send anyone to hell. Jesus gives people the desire of their heart. The second thing I want to say before we finish, I said I'd come back to this phrase that Paul uses at least twice in this text, the term sinful nature. The Greek word here is a word called sarx, and it just simply means flesh. In places like Greece and Israel and a lot of parts of the Middle East, especially within Greek Orthodoxy and, and Judaism and some factions of Islam, they don't just bury their dead kind of like we do. They don't you know, embalm them and put them in a box and bury them in the ground. They do something else with them because they save the, the bones or the skeletal remains of those deceased, especially if they're priests or clerics or whatever. And they put them in a box called a sarcophagus. And what's a sarcophagus is two Latin words put together. Sarco, meaning flesh, and phagus, meaning to eat. And so literally, a sarcophagus is a flesh eater. And so they put the body in that box, and after all the sarks, the flesh has rotted away and dried up. Then they take the bones out and they put them in another box called an ossuary. And that's what they put in a tomb or, or bury or wherever they want to keep it. All of that is to say that I think that Paul is trying to tell us that as long as we're living in this flesh, this mortal body that is subject to death, we're going to struggle with sin. Period. And the fight is real. Look at this, verse 22. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. The desire of my heart beyond anything else. I consider everything else garbage compared to having Christ in me and knowing Him and the fellowship of His suffering and the resurrection. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. I delight in that. But I see another law. At work, waging war with the members of my body, the ESV says. And the wages war with my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's worked within me, my sarks, my flesh. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. I think he already knows the answer. Thanks be to God who delivers me through our Lord Jesus Christ. Boom! Stop right there, Paul. Stop! Please! Because now you're about to destroy all my theology. So then, 
I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, in my sarks, I'm a slave to the law of sin. Already? Not yet. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Right here is where the grace of God meets our sin head on. Does Paul know what he's talking about? Oh, yeah. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Because of these surpassingly great revelations that I've had, I'm indwelt, I'm inspired, I'm writing, and I've seen Jesus do miracles through me and do His thing. Because of all of this revelation, I was given... I didn't have it before. I was given a thorn... In my flesh. Is it Satan? No, it's a messenger of Satan to keep me from becoming conceited. And what he does is torture me night and day, day and night, even in my dreams sometimes. Three times I plead, Jesus, please take this away from me. Three times. I would think Paul would have a pretty good audience with Christ. Crickets. Second time, nothing. And Jesus says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, okay, I think I understand a little better now. Therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Don't you have just one? I've got a ton of them. That's plural. i got all kinds of weaknesses. So that Christ's power, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for the sake of Christ, I delight in weakness and in insult and in hardships. And in persecutions and in difficulties, everybody wants to be like Jesus in his life. Paul says, I want to be like him in his death, the fellowship of his suffering. I know what I'm called to. He has told me to count the cost. If they hated me, man, they are going to hate you. If they did this to me, they're going to treat you worse. No servant is above his master. Count the cost. You want to follow me? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Because we may walk up on the hill and be crucified together. In fact, we are going to. Resurrection life is only available to those who have died. Jesus says, Paul, don't you realize that if I don't allow struggles into your life, you will never, ever be dependent on me? You're going to fall right back into your sin, so I'm going to leave that thorn right there to safeguard you, to protect you, and to keep you from destroying yourself. Paul, I need for you to be weak enough to trust in me and not depend on yourself. We praise Jesus all day long for all the calamity that He prevents from coming into our lives. Will you praise Him for the calamity He allows and leaves in place? That's the end of sermon 2.
Alan and Mike are preaching next week, and I don't know what they're going to say, but I know exactly how it's going to begin. For there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus is off the table. But the war with sin is not yet. I'm going to ask the elders to go ahead and come down, unless they're still mad at me. If you're not struggling with sin at all, really, in your life, or you haven't really given it much thought, I'm just saying it might be. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it might be a real cause for concern. But if you're struggling with your sin, if you're fighting, if you're clawing and screaming out to Jesus, you're probably in a really good place this morning spiritually. And if you're in either of these auditoriums, you're probably in a great place physically. And I'm going to tell you why. You see these guys? You know what they do? They struggle with sin. Every single day. They hate sin. They fight sin. They hate it in themselves. They hate it in me. And they hate it in you. And they stand before you as guys, shepherds, elders of the Lord's church, knowing they're going to give an account for not only their souls, but yours too. You want to fight? These guys will fight with you. They'll do whatever it takes. They will get down in the dirt with you because they love you and they will help you. So here's the question. Do you want to fight? It's a choice. This morning, if you want to fight, then bring it right now as we stand.